Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And on today's show, I'm going to be joined by State Representative Eric Allen. He is a Democrat that represents the Smyrna area in the State House, but he's also a Democratic candidate for Lieutenant Governor. And listeners may remember that we talked with Representative Allen when he launched his Lieutenant Governor campaign last summer. But we wanted to circle back with him about some issues going on in the legislature this session. He and other Democrats that represent Cobb County are in a fight right now over drawing local district lines for the county commission and the Board of Education in Cobb County. And he shares some insights about the highly unusual process that Cobb County is being subjected to by state Republicans as they try to draw lines for their local districts. Um, Even if you're not in Cobb County, this is also an issue that's relevant in Gwinnett County and Athens-Clarke County. As state Republicans try to thwart the expanded power Democrats have seen in local offices in Metro Atlanta and the Athens area. Uh, We also catch up with him about the state of the lieutenant governor's race and some top priorities for for legislative session, including the landmark mental health legislation that's been proposed by Speaker Ralston and has the support of some uh, Republicans and Democrats in the legislature. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to my conversation with State Representative Eric Allen, Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor. Representative Allen, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Cal, for having me. And, uh, look forward to it. Yeah, so so we really appreciate you taking the time today. I, I understand it's been a pretty busy day in uh, the state house, particularly with the issue of local redistricting, which is something that I wanted to start with here. Um, you know, I know that you've been most directly involved in local redistricting as it relates to Cobb County, um, but this is also an issue for our listeners. This is also an issue in, in Gwinnett County, in athens Clark County. And one of the threads that connects some of these different conflicts around local redistricting is they're popping up in places where Democrats have gained a foothold on elected offices at the local level. Um, can you start by just sharing with our listeners what's been going on with redistricting in Cobb County and what you're trying to achieve there? Yeah, I think you. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is um, a situation where there are, you know, out of 159 counties, there's probably going to be 155 that get to follow regular order, um, but there are, you know, three or four counties that they're they're targeting that have recently shifted from uh, Republican majorities in the delegation to Democratic majorities, um, and it's uh, it's egregious. It's shameful. Uh, it's a power grab. It's all those those different words. Um, so what they're doing right now, particularly in Cobb, is basically trying to seize power not only over the process, but also over the school board and county commission uh, districts. Um, as we know, this is a county that has been growing. It's becoming more and more diverse. And the, the voters have, over the last two cycles, have gone to the poll and selected uh, you know, Democratic leadership, Democrat leadership uh, in their uh, county commission and also in the delegation. Um, but there's a, 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 a movement or, or a segment of um, elected officials in Cobb County, main, mainly uh, in the minority now, uh, Republicans who want to subvert the, uh, the will of the voter and to ram down, uh, legis- not legislative, but school board and county commission maps that are going to help them uh, retain some power in the county. And so that's what we're fighting. I mean, it's a, 
it's very unfortunate, as I said, that we're not able to to do our work through local, you know, through regular order. Um, but instead, we're having a speaker who really prides himself on on order, um, basically creating a ton of chaos. This is unprecedented. In, in the last two cycles, and I would even, you know, argue that further back than that, this has never happened. If, for example, 20, 2012, um, every single county went through the local process for redistricting. Not one county went outside of that process. Right now, we already have Cobb, Gwinnett, and Richmond who are moving outside of that regular order process. So basically taking the duly elected leadership of the delegation out of the process and allowing legislators who live 200 miles away from Cobb to have a say on what communities of interest are in Cobb. Now, and and correct me if I'm wrong on some of this because I am I was grabbing this from Twitter today, but I saw this morning you and other Democrats in the Cobb County legislative delegation had a press conference at the Capitol on this issue, um, but you had kind of a surprising special guest in, in Republican Cobb Representative Ed Setzler. Um, what happened there? Well, you know, we, we were laying out our our process. I mean, we've had a very open, transparent process uh, that has included the commissioners, included the uh, Board of Education members uh, has included every member of the delegation. Now, they chose not to participate, uh, but I guess uh, Representative Setzler thought that this was his moment to start engaging uh, and, uh, you know, was was willing to go to the podium to answer a question from the press. Um, so he didn't just walk up on his own. They asked him a question. He walked up, gave a response. Um, but it was it was it was inaccurate. It was uh, it was not factual. And I, I took the opportunity to just remind the press that were there that this is the first time I'd heard Ed Setzler mention the word map since we started this process back in October. Um, he has not shown up for one delegation meeting. He has not responded to a single email. He has not responded to a single phone call. All he has done is subverted the process and introduced his maps. And it is a um, extreme show of privilege for him to do that. Um, he knows that he doesn't have to talk to us because he has a speaker, a lieutenant governor, and a governor and, a, and two chambers that could easily subvert the will of the Cobb County voters and their majority and do exactly what they want him to do. Um, so that that should have been his comments, which is, we really don't care about the process. We're going to get what we want anyway. But instead, he chose to uh, try to explain um, the the uh, lack of cooperation that he's shown over the last couple of months. Now, I think this has you know some relevance to the office that you're running for, the statewide office in, in lieutenant governor. Um, if you were to be elected lieutenant governor this year, chances are you'd probably pr- be presiding over a Senate that retains a Republican majority. You know, it's well known that the current lieutenant governor, Republican Jeff Duncan, he has some significant differences with members of his own party. Um, and and maybe the most significant example of power stripping came at the expense of former Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle following the 2010 election when his power over committee assignments was, was uh, pretty limited by fellow Republicans. How do you think about um, what challenges you may face if you were to be a Democratic Lieutenant Governor presiding over a Republican majority state Senate, particularly in this era over the last couple of years where we've seen so many examples of Republicans leveraging every ounce of power they have um, to limit the expansion of, of Democratic power, the power of the Democratic Party in, in the state of Georgia? Well, so there's, there's a couple of things. One, I, I think that instead of saying likely, I think, I mean, it, it, it's pretty likely that we're going to have a, a Republican Senate. Um, and it's, it's pretty likely that there will be uh, some 
I, I guess it, it would be some motion toward trying to even further reduce the powers of lieutenant governor. But I, you know, I answer that two ways. One is that when Mark Taylor and Casey Cagle were both stripped of their power, that was done through resolution that the governor had to sign. Um, I, I fully expected, you know, if I win, um, there will also be a uh, governor Abrams that would probably not sign a resolution to strip a lieutenant governor, a Democratic mm-hmm. lieutenant governor of their power. Um, so I think, you know, from a baseline, you know, I'm, I'm looking at where we are now and looking at how you leverage the power that you do have. Um, and I think there's a couple of ways to do that. One, there's always the, the there's always the power of the uh, bully pulpit. Um, you know, they can, you know, limit how you assign committees, but they can't limit uh, what special committees you uh, create. Um, they can, um, you know, limit the ability to uh, assign bills to committee. Um, they, there's a lot of things that they can limit. Uh, but I would rather focus not only on the 40 days of the legislative session, but what can be done outside of that. Uh, there are 325 other days where the lieutenant governor can have a, a, a significant impact, uh, not only working with state agencies to make sure that they're doing everything they can to protect the environment, to protect the sick. Um, but you you also use that pulpit to start building bridges and relationships. The way I look at it is not just about power, it's about partnerships. And where are there partnerships across the state where for the last 25 years, we haven't had a Democratic Lieutenant Governor to go work with Democratic commissioners, Democratic mayors, uh, Democrat district attorneys, uh, to really start building those partnerships and creating you know, a, a better, more inclusive Georgia for everybody uh, using that office. So I, I, I agree with the premise, uh, but I think it's also only true if you think about the role of lieutenant governor in the narrow scope of the 40 days of the legislative session. Now, now speaking of opportunities for partnerships, and, and you also mentioned that Speaker Ralston is somebody who who typically um, likes to have order in his chamber. Um, you have kind of two distinct trends of things going on in the legislature this year. You have the things that Republicans are doing to signal to their their base for a primary election, but you also have pretty significant bipartisan legislation introduced by the Speaker on mental health issues um, and making sweeping changes that, that he says would uh, make it easier for Georgians to access mental health care in this state. What do you make of that legislation? And, and were you involved in, in crafting it or crafting some of the recommendations that went into it? No, I, I was I was not involved. Uh, I mean, it's very um, very rare that he's going to allow a Democrat running statewide to get get that much profile on his bill. But it, it's a good bill. Uh, it does some of the most important things that we need done in our mental health, you know, network. Number one, parity. Um, so it addresses uh, the parity issue. Um, and for, for those that maybe you know not following it as closely, parity just is basically having insurance companies cover mental health the same way they do physical health. Um, if you've got diabetes, you're not told, well, you can only go see your, your doctor three times a year. But if you've got mental health and you want to go to a psychiatrist, uh, a, a insurance plan can say, well, look, you get four visits. That's it. Um, and the rest is on you. Uh, so by eliminating that and, and really making insurance companies cover people until they're well, uh, will go a long way. So parity is a, a huge thing. Um, the, the other thing I would say about the bill is it's, it's a little too, too little too late. Um, parity was passed into federal law in 2008. Um, George W. Bush is the one that signed it into law. Uh, the reason, there's no reason why Georgia has, is just now um, 
enforcing parity. We've had the, the ability to do so with insurance companies since 2008. We've chosen not to do it. The same way we've chosen, we've chosen not to expand Medicaid. We've had the authority and the ability to do that since 2012. Um, so we're doing too little too late to placate an election year. Um, I think those that have had issues accessing the mental health system um, will see that this is relief. This is a good bill. Um, but there's so much more we could be doing uh, within our network. And how big, in your view, is the absence of Medicaid expansion in terms of this push on mental health? I mean, one thing, at least, that I understand about this issue is that there's, you know, the access to care component, there's are doctors available, are there treatment options available in the community that you're in, but there's also the financing element of it. And Medicaid expansion, at least as Democrats have talked about it for a long time, um, is a potential big source of federal money that can come into the state and support the state's healthcare system. Do you think that this mental health legislation you know, needs Medicaid expansion as a part of it to be effective? So yeah, and it needs it for two reasons. One, um, it gives 500,000 Georgians access to the, the healthcare network uh, for mental and physical health. Um, so it's important for that reason. But one of the things not talked about often enough is the financial component. If you really want it to, so let's look at the Department of Behavioral Health. DBHDD, which is our safety net in Georgia for behavioral health, mental health, um, is severely understaffed. Uh, its pay scale is severely lower than the open market. It has a hard time uh, recruiting doctors, nurses, paraprofessionals, um, you know, all of that. That system could really get a shot in the arm by Medicaid expansion because not only will Medicaid expansion not cost a penny to the state of Georgia, it would actually bring in about a billion dollars a year over the next three years. Uh, and that money could go into shoring up those safety net systems. But not only do you bring in 500,000 Georgians onto the, the healthcare insured network, but you also bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars that could bolster the safety net for those that are still left out of the uh, Medicaid, Medicaid or private insurance conversation. So Medicaid expansion is not just about insuring those 500,000. It's also about financing the safety nets and the other programs that we need to make all Georgians well, physical and mental health. Now, another issue that I know you've been engaged on is dealing with uh, pollution issues in the state. Um, you had a medical sterilization company. Um, I can't remember if it was in your district or near your district, but that was uh, causing some air pollution that that uh, could potentially lead to cancer for people exposed. Um Recent reporting also shows has has shed more light on an issue about Georgia Power and the way that they store coal ash um, from their power facilities and the ways in which coal ash can pollute water sources. This has been an issue in Middle Georgia. Um, what more can the state be doing to protect uh, the air, the water quality, to to protect people from pollution in Georgia? You know, this is, uh, I'm glad you asked that question because this can, I can take this in a whole lot of different directions. Uh, one, I'll start with kind of going back to one of my question, my uh, responses earlier. Under, under Democratic leadership, there is so much that the Georgia Environmental Protection Division can do with a governor and a lieutenant governor that give them the directive to just enforce the laws that are on the book. You know, I've, I've been trying to pass legislation for the last, you know, three years to deal with coal ash and ethylene oxide. But the, the Department of the Environmental Protection Division has all the tools they need to enforce it differently. It doesn't need a legislative fix. 
So once again, when you talk about the, the limits of what the lieutenant governor can do legislatively, that's one thing. But going to the Environmental Department uh, Protection Division and saying, you have the authority to pose fines up to $20,000 per infraction. Let's start doing it. Let's start holding these companies accountable. Um, and, and things will be a little bit different. Uh, and that's on the ethylene oxide issue. Um, on the other side of this, you know, we can work a little more closely with our federal partners. Um, you know, the EPA division has now got new leadership with uh, Daniel Blackman, who was a phenomenal PSC candidate, but now is heading up uh, Region 4 for EPA. Uh, they've come out with new rules uh, around ethylene oxide. Not strong enough. Um, there's still a lot of work that can be done, you know, through the state. But right now, they require companies like Sterogenics to report uh, what they're putting into the air, um, you know, what they're releasing from the stack. The problem is it's still self-reporting. I'd like to see the state take a stronger stance and have that information fed directly to a state database. But once again, that's not legislated. That, that's a budget issue in directing the department to, to change their rules to require these companies to, to have that information fed directly to EPB and not go to, uh, not them self-report it to the federal database. So there, there are a lot of different things that we can continue to look at uh, from an environmental standpoint that I think will be much safer for Georgians, air, land, and water um, with different leadership. Now, moving on here to the the state of the lieutenant governor's race, uh, you've been in this race for lieutenant governor for a while now. I know we discussed your campaign shortly after you launched it last summer, but you've got some new friends in this race, <clears throat> mainly uh, Charlie Bailey, who was running for attorney general, but as a result of some behind the scenes maneuvering, as reported by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he's now joined this race for lieutenant governor and, and left the race for AG did you have any kind of reaction to Charlie Bailey joining this race or the reporting that it was prompted by <clears throat> some maneuvering from senior Democratic Party officials? I, you know, I, I don't I don't really know these senior Democratic. If you're calling, um, you know, former elected officials, senior. I mean, all of us have friends that support us. Um, you know, I, I was more confused than anything. Um, you know, for the last six years, Charlie's been running for AG. And overnight, he sends an announcement saying it's his passion to serve as lieutenant governor. I think, I think that passion was not prompted by senior officials. It was prompted by the reality that he was in a tough race. Um, and I think it's confusing the voters. Um, I also think that our, our voters in the Democratic primary are looking for fighters. We're looking for people that don't run from a fight. Um, and I can tell you, I've, I've been fighting and I have not backed down. I mean, we, we had a lieutenant governor that backed down. That's how we got 202. You know, we got SB 202 because we had a lieutenant governor that ran and hit in his office. Um, we, we don't need to elect another lieutenant governor uh, who is going to run from a fight just because it gets tough. Uh, when things get tough, that's when you anchor down and you, you fight on. And that's what I plan to do. I never expected this to be an uncontested primary. Um, we have a lot of support. Um, I didn't have to be asked to do it by anybody, uh, any senior person or whatever he's, you know, they're calling him. Um, I did this because uh, I have a passion to serve and I have a base of support who wants to see leadership like what I've exhibited and what I've shown in higher office. And so I'm going to run my race. I think we're in a good position. Um, I know this is the week for, for fundraising numbers. I think we're going to, you know, still be in the front in the lead um, with fundraising, but even if we're not, I mean, I understand that I'm, I'm trapped in this building. I can't fundraise during session. Um, so what I've got, I've got to have through 
um, you know, the end of uh, end of March, early April, April 4th is when we get out. But I think we're well-funded to, to make it through that time. We're going to be well-funded going into the primary. And um, lastly here for you, one of the things that we've been focusing on our show a lot recently, um, it has tie-in with this discussion about redistricting, local redistricting at the county levels, um, also about Senate Bill 202 and, and other efforts to make it more difficult to vote in the state. Um, you know, AJC polling showed that most people in the state rank their top issues sort of as expected, the economy and their personal economic situation and how COVID-19 is impacting their life. At the same time, you have uh, these issues going on with sort of the health of our small d democracy. And those issues, although they may not be at the top of voters' minds, they're certainly important in in the you know the state of our, our government and, and state of our democracy moving forward. How do you think about it as you run this campaign and you have issues like these or other issues like pollution that may not be at the top of voters' minds that are important for voters to understand the stakes on? How do you think about messaging on those issues while speaking to the issues that voters say are, are most important to them, like the state of the economy and COVID? You know, I, I think all of it um, goes back to small d democracy. Um, it goes back to leadership. It goes back to what do you want reflecting your leaders? Um, we've, we've had a, a COVID response that has focused on, um, I, I would say, misfocused on the wellness of the population. Um, we've we fought, which I find very contradictory. Um, you know, I was talking to some voters a couple of days ago and I said, it's, you know, it's it's really interesting that we've got, uh, you know, people who want to ban mask mandates to keep people safe, but they want to go out and regulate what books are in a school library. Um, you know, that's a that's a contradiction. That's stuff that we, we've got to really reconcile. Um, you talked about the reapportionment process. We've got, you know, 157 counties that are able to go through their regular order, 56. And you got three that are being drugged through a completely different process because they can, because of a power grab. Um, that's democracy. Um, you know, the voting, the SB 202, there are, there are bills on voting moving through right now. Butch Miller's got a bill to ban prop boxes. Um, you know, all of those are, are small d. Democracy. Now, what's the way that ties to your to your wallet is one of the things that keeps Georgia moving is our is our economy. We have a thriving, robust economy. If we continue to go down the road of some of these most repressive um, measures, whether it be with voting, whether it be with the woman's right to choose, you know, with abortion, whether it be with uh, attacks on public education, uh, whether it be the, the resistance to making sure that we cover every single Georgian we can and still bring money back into, uh, into the state. All of those are things that eventually will end up hurting our economy. Uh, and I think the voter knows that. Um, I think the voter is ready for change. They understand that this isn't about a blue Georgia. It's not about a red Georgia. It's about unifying Georgia so we can continue to move forward. All right. Well, State Representative Eric Allen, a candidate for lieutenant governor. If listeners uh, want to learn more about your campaign for lieutenant governor, how could they do that? Yeah, you can visit uh, allenforgeorgia.com. Um, we'd love to have you sign up for our, our newsletters and our emails. Um, love to have you uh, volunteer and and also love to have you invite us to your your neck of the woods in Georgia to uh, come down and talk to you and your friends. I want to get around as, as as many corners of the state as I can to talk to as many voters because this this election matters and I want to make sure I'm representing everyone. All right. Well, State Representative Eric Allen, we thank you for joining the podcast. 
Thank you very much, Kyle. Thanks for tuning into PeachPod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to PeachPod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.